Go and take your seats. Let's do this. Week nine of our series on James. And, and the text we're going to unpack today is James chapter 4, beginning at verse 4 through the end of the chapter. And before I read it, I just need to remind you of, uh, of who wrote this passage. Uh, it was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, a, a, guy, who, a guy who shoots straight, a, a guy who will tell you the truth whether it kicks you in the gut or not. Uh, James, a guy who has no problem getting in your face and stepping all up in your grill. So Maple Grove, take a deep breath, brace yourself, and and open up your heart and mind to these God-breathed, sharper-than-a-doubled-edged sword, penetrating, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, living and active words from our Maker, our Creator, our Savior, and our King. And you know, something we, we sang on the, I didn't hit my clock, that's awesome. I get extra time. Not that I pay attention to that, anyhow. But, you know, we, we sang in that, that first song, right? right? Um, Speak your words of truth that satisfy my heart. Anybody know the next line? As I what? As I seek you. Uh, you see, God's words will satisfy our heart if we're seeking him. And I got to tell you, when you're reading James, if you're not seeking God, they're not going to be very satisfying. Right? Because James is tough. James, James is in your face. So here we go. Are you, guys, are you guys ready for some James? Yeah? Okay, good, good. Because he's going to let us have it <laughs> right out of the gates. Verse 4. You adulterous people. Turn to the person. No, never mind. <laughs> we won't do that. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor. It actually is the same word, shows grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. You know, clean up those sinful actions and purify your hearts. Clean up those sinful attitudes and thoughts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Feeling good so far? Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law, speaks against God's word, God's truth, and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting on judgment on it. You're judging God's word. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and by the way, it's not me and it's not you the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Wow, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. May God bless the reading of his word. And um, let, let's pray into our study today. And you know, I ask you guys to pray open palms. We do that. It's just symbolic, it's not required, but just symbolic that, hey, you know what, God, I'm open to what you're going to bring my way this morning. Uh, Father God, we love you and we humbly come before you and really how else could we come before a God who breathes out stars, holds oceans in his hands, a God who is and was and always will be, a God who knows us better than we even know ourselves, but yet still loves us and wants to be with us. And God, I pray your word comes down with power. I pray it rains down. God, I pray it speaks to our hearts. I I pray it it finds fertile soil standing up here and sitting out in those chairs. I I pray that 
There, a difference is made because of what happens as we encounter your living and active word. In Jesus' name, amen. 2,000 years ago, God breathed a powerful letter through a servant, James, the half-brother of Jesus. And, and listen, James is a guy who did not even have faith un, until he had an encounter with his crucified brother after he had risen from the dead. And, and as you read the letter, we see that J James had one one driving passion. He, he had one consuming concern as his pen danced across the pages. And, and James' primary concern was for the churches that he was writing to and for the Jesus followers who attended those churches and no doubt for all churches and believers who will attend churches until Jesus Christ splits the sky and comes home. His primary concern was, was for these believers who claim the name of Jesus his concern was that they would not merely talk about faith, sing about faith, buy t-shirts about faith, spout off cliches about faith, but instead would have real faith. You see, real faith is not really thought about, it's lived out loud. Listen, we saw in Romans 2 this week, and our faith comes from hearing that a faith lived out loud is critical to the mission of Christ. Romans 2, we read this yesterday. Uh, you're so proud of knowing the law. Yeah, you know God's word and God's truth, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say that Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. In other words, no wonder the world does not believe because look at how those who claim the name of Jesus are living out their faith. So James, what, what would my life look like? What would our life look like if we lived our faith out loud. And I think if James were here, he would look each of us in the eye and he would say, Steve, and you can fill in your name. If, Steve, if you have real faith, you will turn your trials into triumphs. Steve, if you have real faith, you will defeat sin and temptation. Steve, if you have real faith, you will reign in your tongue so that your religion is not worthless. Steve, if you have real faith, you will look out after the orphan, the widow, and the less, less fortunate. Steve, if you have real faith, you will update your favorites list so that no matter who people are, where they've been, what they look like, what they're struggling with, you invite them to sit with you at the feet of Jesus. Steve, if you have real faith, you will tame the untamable and begin using your tongue to give life and not bring death. Steve, you will think before you speak. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? And Steve, you will choose godly wisdom over worldly wisdom. Yes, Steve, you would say no to the wisdom that is full of bitter envy and selfish ambition. You'll say no to the wisdom that makes you the point of everything, that makes you uppermost in your own affections. A wisdom that only brings quarrels and fights and disorder and every evil practice. And instead, you would say yes and embrace the wisdom from above, a wisdom that leads to peace and a harvest of righteousness, a, a wisdom that produces good deeds that come from a life lived out in humility. And your life will be characterized, Steve, by things like being pure, peace-loving, considerate, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Yes, yeah, Steve, that's what it would look like if you had real faith. Now this morning we're going to unpack James chapter 4, 4 through 17. And in these 14 powerful James packed in your face, in your grits, in your whatever verses, James is proclaiming that real faith pursues submission. And the central key theme is found in James chapter 4, verse 7, where he says, submit yourselves then to God. Submit who? Submit yourself, right? Can't submit your wife, can't submit your husband, you're, you got to submit yourself. Submit yourself to who? Submit yourselves to God. You turn to the person to your right and left and just say, submit yourselves. And, and in our text, as we unpack it, we're going to see that James kind of saying, hey, here, here are five things that, that you need to do in order to submit yourselves to God. Uh, number one, we see that you got to break up with the world. 
bow down before God. You got to stop busting on your brothers and sisters. You got to refuse to boast about your tomorrow. And you got to embrace the ultimate bottom line. Question. Does anybody here want to submit to God? I'm assuming we all do, right? That's a good thing, right? Because when we submit to God, we humble ourselves before God. He lifts us up, right? Everybody stand for a second, if you don't mind. And, and what I want you to do is to lift yourself up and see how you do, right? Go ahead. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, not too high, right? Not, not too much of a hang time. Now you can sit down. Now you're awake, right? Oh, my calves are hurting, right? Okay, see, we, we don't do good at lifting ourselves up, but God can lift us up higher and hold us up longer than we can do ourselves. Amen? If you want to submit yourself to God, you must first break up with the world. James writes, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And know that verse has not made it on many t-shirts. I've never seen it framed in many people's living rooms, right? You adulterous people, right? And again, it's just hard-hitting in your face, James. And remember, James, he's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to people who don't know God. He's writing people who claim to know God, who claim to be in a committed relationship with God, and he says to them, you adulterous people. Now, I don't think that anyone in this room wants to be called that. I mean, no one wants to be labeled as an adulterous person. And no one wants to wear that scarlet letter, but yet adultery does happen, right? In fact, if you've been following the news lately, you know that adultery is a pretty hot topic right now, uh, thanks to some computer hacking that went down on a website called Ashley Madison. Now, the Ashley Madison website was launched in 2001 as a as a place for people who are in a committed relationship to cheat on their spouse or significant other. And Ashley Madison's motto is simply, life is short, have an affair. And their Lord was secrecy. We will help you cheat on your spouse and nobody will find out. Well, for millions from all walks of life, political leaders, government officials, pastors, and leaders in churches, their greatest fear was realized back in July when the Impact Team, a hacker group, cracked the Ashley Madison database. What they actually did for a few weeks is they held that database with over 30-plus million names hostage for ransom, asking Ashley Madison to shut down their operations, and they refused. So two weeks ago, the data was released on the dark web, and millions of users have since been exposed of cheating or at least trying to cheat. Understand, without a doubt, millions of people are reaping what they've sown. Light has revealed the darkness, and spouses who may not have had any idea that they had a fractured marital foundation have found themselves floundering in emotional quicksand. And the high visibility of this hack has, has led to the, to the question, what do Americans think of adultery? Do Americans accept it? it I mean, is it like going to the movies? Some do, some don't, but no one really cares. Or is it something more? And interestingly, even though we live in such a sexualized culture, most people, in fact, the recent poll was done, 90% of Americans still believe that adultery is immorally wrong. Yes, this week people found out that it's not as simple as AshleyMadison.com would like its former users to think. Life is short, have an affair. You see, what they left off is that, yeah, you might get caught and you would lose your reputation, lose your spouse, lose everything. See, I'm convinced that if James had a website, James would say, life is eternal. Don't have an affair. And, and, and again, James, James in James 4.4, 4, is, is he... He's calling out these believers, you adulterous people. He's calling out these Jesus followers, these churches, for committing adultery, for cheating, for stepping out on, for betraying, for two-timing, not each other, but God. Understand, throughout both the Old and New Testament, the relationship God has had with his people is often described as as a marriage. It's a common metaphor. Here's just a few, few verses. 
Isaiah 55, 54, verse 4. For your maker is your what? Is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. And, and Paul in Ephesians 5, after you know, talking about you know, how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he concludes that discussion by saying, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, biblical marriage, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about what? Christ and the church. And, and, and since, since relationship God has with his people is often described as a marriage, when, whenever God's people cheat on him, he u- uses prophets to call them to the carpet, like Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 3. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it and is doing the same thing. Ezekiel says it pretty harshly. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. You prefer these false gods to the God who loved you and redeemed you. Sounds a lot like James. You adulterous people. And and you know what? I think when those readers in the first century heard that, they they were probably like, like, like us would say, but we love you, God. Well, God, when did we ever do that? God, how did we ever cheat on you? Don't you know that friendship with the world, how did we commit adultery? Because we became a friend with the world. That's it? That's all I did? I'm just a friend of the world? Well, see, friendship in the first century had a much deeper meaning than it does today. It meant to enter into a deep and intimate relationship with somebody. See, today we can refer to somebody as a friend. They're not really our friend. On Facebook, I have 799 friends. Actually, it went up to 800 because a Navy buddy back from the 1980s, James Patterson, sent a friend request I woke up to this morning and I'm at 800. Woo! Cracked 800, you know. Ain't that special. And, and cool thing is, he's the guy that I got to share Christ with, and I, I baptized, at, um, baptized in the Christ at Lebanon Church of Christ back in the early 80s, the mid-80s. But do I really know them? Sure, the internet has allowed me to feel connected to people in a way that was defined as illegal stalking 10 years ago. Oh, look what they had for dinner. Look who they having dinner with. Oh, look at that guy. Is he dating anybody? Oh, that girl. Oh, let's look at her life. Oh, she's graduated from college? What? Oh, oh, is that her sister beside her? Let me look up her sister's life. And listen, this constant and incessant peeking into other people's lives carries this kind of, you know, false drug like I know them. But I don't really know them. We're, we're not really friends. We're at best casual acquaintances. And honestly, they might be freaked out to know how much you've learned about them, not by conversations or contact, but by just stalking them on the internet. And you got to know that when you start going to their Twitter feed and you start favoring things they said three years ago, it really wigs them out. You know, it's like, what is going on here? Who is this? And again, friendship in the first century is completely different, different meaning. I mean, people sought after friendships, but those friendships were restrict it. I mean, we see this in Jesus' life, right? He had the three, James, John, and Peter. He had the 12. He had the 70. He had the 144. He had the 50, but he spent the most time with the three and then with the 12. Why? Because friendship is restricted because you can't go deep with everyone. And what James is saying is that when you and I go deep with the world, when we are intimate with the world and its values, when we allow the world to shape us and define who we are, what we do, what we say, and what we believe, that we are not only friends with the world, but we have actually put ourselves up in opposition against God. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And that Greek word means hostility or hatred. You see, when I'm a friend of the world, it's not like I forgot about God, but that word means that I, be, I have hostility and I have hatred towards God get it? Good. Now, now, I don't have time to unpack this any further, but just let me say that there, there are certain people that you can, you, can, you can flex at and bow up at, and certain people, right, you know, like The Rock, I probably wouldn't do that with. Well, I'm just saying that flexing at God is not a good idea. I'm just saying, right? Flexing 
all right, God, you know, bring it on, creator universe, right? <laughs> Not a good idea. Therefore, anyone who chooses, right, it's our choice, we, have, we are and have chosen, to be a friend of the world, anyone who chooses to enter into a deep, personal, and life-shaping relationship with the world becomes an enemy of God. That's a military term. We become an enemy of God. And again, to make an enemy of the all-powerful God who, who breathes out stars and holds oceans in his hand, I'm just saying that's not a good idea. If you chose God as your enemy and I've chose God as my enemy, I need to learn how to pick better enemies, right? Because you're not going to win that one. You're not going to win that one. And the bottom line, James is saying we cannot be a friend of the world and of God's at the same time. James is saying we, we cannot, he says, we, we cannot look like the world, believe like the world, behave like the world, and still be in a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. Get it? Good. And James is saying, hey, if you've convinced yourself, Christians and churches, that it's okay for you to have one foot in the world and one foot with your Savior, if you convince yourself that riding the fence is okay and living in the gray with the sovereign king of the universe is okay, James is saying you are absolutely wrong. You're wrong. And you know the way James is talking here reminds me of the prophet Elijah calling out God's people on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. You see, they wanted to have a relationship with God while having a relationship with all these false gods. Friendship with the world around them. And here's what he says. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. You know? If you want to be friends with the world, go for it. You want to be friends with God, go for it. You can't have both. And it says the people, what? Said what? Nothing. Because they didn't. You ever have a question you didn't want to answer? <laughs> I don't really want to answer it. I don't want to tell the truth. I don't want to change the truth, so I'll just ignore the truth, and I'll be silent. I'll look at my shoes. Oh, that's a nice-looking shoe. Hey, you see the bird fly? Look at that. Right? Let's change the subject. James continued. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, the jealousy of God is a confusing topic because when we think of jealousy, we tend to think of things, things that are birthed out of fear or insecurity. That's not how God is jealous. Uh, no, no, and God's jealousy is not built around, oh, look, look what they have and I don't because we don't have anything, right? Every good and perfect gift, James says, already comes from God. No, no his jealousy is, hey, I, I, put my, I put my spirit in there and my glory is at stake. And their life and all its fullness is at stake. You see, his jealousy stems from the love of his own name and the hope that our joy in that name might reflect more perfectly his goodness and grace. John Piper puts it this way. This is a great job. God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, gives her not the chores of the slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. So you have this picture of someone who is rescued and ransomed and clean and, and put in, in a place of honor who betrays that rescue and runs back to her shame. Basically saying, hey, you, you're not a good king. You, you, you're not a good God. And I'm going to go back to your enemies and your enemies are going to treat me better than you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is jealous for the spirit that he placed inside of us. And he's jealous for us to experience the fullest joy possible, made manifest only. He, he's jealous for you and I to experience the fullest joy and life possible, manifested only in knowing, loving, and following him. Get it? Good. And again, what James is saying to us today, August the 30th, 2015, is that to pursue submission, we need to break up with the world. It must be done. And, and I get it. Breaking up is hard to do, right? Now, that's why there's all kinds of songs about it, right? Share with those around you, you 
what some of your favorite breaking up songs are, all right? You got any? You know? Forget about you, right? Hey. Okay. And, 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 and here, I date myself, but I got to just tell you, when I think of a breaking up song, here's what I think of. Don't take your love away from me. Don't you leave my heart in misery. Because if you go, then I'll be blue. Because breaking up is hard to do. They say that breaking up is hard to do. And now I know, I know that it's true. <laughs> Don't say that this is the end. Instead of breaking up, I wish that we were making up again. <laughs> okay, sorry. All right. Neil Sadaka, 1971. I read it in the history class. <laughs> All right. That was terrible. We've got to break up with the world. And we need to bow down before God. Question, what's God's response to our adultery? What's God's response to our cheating on him, stepping out on him, betraying him? What's God's response to this type of hostility and hatred? What's God's response to you and I saying, you know what? You're not a good king. You're not a good God. I'm going to go to your enemies because I love them more than I love you. What is God's response? It's this insane statement of truth. But he gives us more grace. Are you kidding me? Amen, Jess. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I know I say that every week. It's a big Bible. Um, but are you kidding me? God's response to my sin, my rebellion, my cheating on him, my betraying him is he gives more grace. And, and I want you just a minute to, to, to say those, those six words out loud as if God wrote them to you. And he did, right? He wrote them to you. In the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your broken promises, in the midst of your sin and rebellion, we need to understand that when our sin is great, his, his grace is greater. When our, when our mistakes and failure are vast, his mercy is deeper. But he gives us more grace. Yeah, you're messed up. You messed up this week. You said you wouldn't do it, and you broke the promise again, but he gives us more grace. Three times on the count of three, he wrote it for you. One, two, three. Gives us more grace, but he gives us more grace, but he gives us more grace. Amen. Maple Grove, there is no sin more powerful than the cross of Christ. There is no sin more powerful than the cross of Christ. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, now the law came to increase the trespass. And what he's saying is that when the law comes in, it reveals we're in trouble. It reveals how messed up we are. But where sin increased, grace, what? Abounded all the more. Now, now I, I don't know how you drug yourself in here today. Maybe... Maybe you think God's done with you, that you sin in a way that God couldn't possibly accept. But listen, regardless of, of how high the volume of sin is in your life, grace abounds all the more. Man, I, I love the way that he says it. Grace abounds all the more. I understand, it's not some photo finish at the end of the race. It's not like grace just wins by a hair, barely squeaking out of victory. No, grace wins by the entire track. Grace blows sin out of the water. Grace finishes a race. Grace showers. Grace does an after-victory interview, goes home, has dinner, watches ESPN, catches up on Downton Abbey season number five, right, and, and goes to bed. And at about 2.30 in the morning, sin crawls across the track. Grace destroys sin. Amen? That's grace abounding all the more. That's the good news of the gospel. Grace abounds all the more. And how does God respond to our adultery? By 
cranking up the volume of grace so loudly that the volume of rebellion is not only no longer heard, but it's eradicated altogether. That's called, we sang about it, right? The scandal of grace. And our response to that should be to bow down before him. And James gives us some ways to do that. Number one, we need to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. It's a military term. It's wartime language. In the Greek, it's, it's about aggression. Resist, stand firm, fight. You don't run, you don't turn, you fight. You don't try to make it to safe ground. You pull out your sword and you engage. You hit, you kick, you bite, you do whatever it takes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I understand in Christ we can defeat the evil one. Amen? We can. Paul said it this way. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide what? The way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. I love this because here's what the Bible just said. I, I have a legitimate enemy, and, and, and I, have these, I have a real flesh that have these desires, of the, a desire to rebel against the Lord. And, and these two things come together and create a powerful pull on my heart away from the Lord and towards friendship with God. But here's what I know. According to the New Testament, because I have the Holy Spirit in me, I, I don't have to sin anymore. Yeah, I will sin. I will still stumble, but I don't have to. I, I can resist. God is faithful. God will always provide a way out, right? There's backup always coming on the way. A greater help is coming to help me resist the devil. Amen? And then we come near to God. Are you blown away that you get to do that? That you get to come near to God? Uh, uh, anybody been in the Oval Office here? I haven't. Maybe a few people, maybe one, right? You know, you get to come near to the God of the universe. That should overwhelm us. And then he will come near to you. And how do we do that? Through the word and prayer. And I'm not talking about reading the Bible to know the Bible. I'm talking about knowing the God of the Bible. At Maple Grove, we're serious about reading the Bible. For the last four years, there's been something, your faith comes from here. If you don't have your own Bible plan, we got one every week. Chapter a day, right? Keeps the devil away. And see what I want. I, I, I want you to open up the Bible, and I want you to find verses like, but he gives us more grace. And grace abounds all the more. And, and, and I, I want you finding it on your own to, to fuel your faith and, and to let you know that God is not against you, that God, that God is for you. I want it to stir you up and be transformed by the Word. Transformed by gazing upon the beauty of who our Lord is as we find Him in the revealed Scripture. We're also transformed through community with other believers. See, community is an indispensable part of growing as a believer. Understand, if what you do in your Bob in Maple Grove is just sitting and listening to me talk and sing, and, and uh, singing some songs, that's great until life happens. Then when life happens, listen to me, there's going to be, that's going to be totally inadequate. I'm telling you as a brother who has been in a lot of hospital rooms and funeral homes in the past 24 years, what you want, what you need at difficult times is brothers and sisters who are embedded in your life. That's why we started life groups a few years back, and that's why we are re-inflating life groups today, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Got to own what you own, right? You know, but... You know, our life groups are kinda, have kind of deflated, and we want to we reinflate them. After church today, if you're interested in a life group facilitator, um, free lunch, no obligation, come down to the Student Movement Center on October the 11th. If you're not in a life group, start signing up now on your connection card. Uh, we're launching a church-wide campaign called Transformed, you know, how God changes us you know, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, financially, and vocationally. God transforms us into new people. Now, now, I don't want to lie to you. Trying to find community is difficult. It's awkward. It requires sacrifices that most of us don't want to make. People will get on your nerves. But here's the good news. You're going to get on their nerves too, right? <laughs> so you, you'll be suffering together. The bottom line is don't live an isolated life. 
Or you think that because you read the Bible and come to church on Sundays, you're getting the best of what God has for you. We're fine best in the firmness of community. You know, with other men, other women, community. Now we will be exposed in our nature, exposed in our pride, exposed in our fears, exposed in our sins. It sounds awful, but it's in being exposed that God sanctifies and grows us into the people he created us to be. And we bow down to God. We got to get real and be serious about our sin. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. If you're taking notes, circle grieve, mourn, wail, and gloom. Yeah, those are not very appealing words. I mean, we want things to be light, fun, and bubbly, right? Understand, in our entertainment-driven and feel-good culture, we don't want anybody making us feel bad. Nothing too thick or too heavy for us. We want people to make us feel good. We want church to make us feel good. We want movies to make us feel good. Understand, our drug of choice is levity. And James is having none of that. He says, mourn, weep, and wail. Why? Because of our sin. Because of our sin. Now, now the Puritans were very deep thinkers. I mean, they had their own issues, how they could think such great thoughts about God and still own slaves. I can't quite figure out. But one of the things that Puritans often prayed for, they would pray for tears. You see, whenever they felt that they were not feeling the weight and burden of their sin, they would literally stop and they would pray and ask God to help them mourn about their own sins. God, I just pray that you would crush me completely. I, I just have not seen my sin for what it really is. So will you just turn me into a heaping, sobbing mess of regret? And I'm with you. I, I like happy and chipper and fun. Let's talk about the awesome things. Let's talk about the new heavens and the new earth. But listen, it's in the dirt. It's been fully busted, fully understanding what's at stake. And it's through tears and snot that the grace of God sends us into an orbit of joy. The Bible tells us about a woman caught in adultery. She's dragged naked into a crowd, flung at the feet of Jesus. The man who caught her said, and the law says, this woman caught in adultery should be stoned. What, what do you say? She's busted. She's naked. She's ashamed. She's thrown in front of a mob. She's dragged before the feet of this rabbi. They have the law on their side. The law says she dies. What do you say, Jesus? And with snot and tears and dirt and shame all over her, Jesus said, let the one of you without sin cast the first stone. And Scripture says that from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they left. And then Jesus grabbed the big rock and he pelted her. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Read your Bible. No, the Bible says he walks over to her. He picks up her face. Picture that. The son of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, picks up this guilty woman's face. Now, her, her guilt is not in question. I mean, it's visible for all to see. Picture the scene, and in this most shameful, despicable moment of her life, Jesus looks her in the face, lifts up her face, looks her face, says, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Uh, understand, it's in the dust, in the dirt, in our tears, in our heartbrokenness over sin. It's in the dirt, in our tears, in our heartbrokenness over sin that the forgiveness of grace engage that the forgiveness and grace of this jealous God who gives us more grace launches us into an orbit of joy. I mean, do you think, how do you think this woman left the scene? Do you think she moped around, I'm a terrible sinner? Or do you think she left that scene joyfully? As I said many times before, Satan's greatest nightmare is the Christian who's convinced of these two realities, sin is serious and his grace is enough. And listen, this type of grace, penetrating repentance, brings about a humility which God exalts. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And James says, in light of this incredible mercy that God has poured out on you, in fact, as a natural outflow of this mercy, James says, stop busting on your brothers and sisters. Now, James spends more time in this letter talking about how you and I tend to use our tongue 
to tear people down than he does any other topic in all of this letter. And here's what he says. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against, same word for slander, a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law, speaks against God's word and judges it. Doesn't sound like a good idea. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. I want to read a few quotes from some commentaries I studied this week. Slander is a legal term today implying telling a falsehood that ruins another's reputation. The term here, kataleo, is broader than that. Literally, it is to talk down or speak against. One can tell the truth about others and still put them down. Gossip about might be a better translation. Gary Holloway. Uh, J.A. Moulter. A defamatory word may be perfectly true. We do not have to tell lies in order to defame. The fact that it is true gives us no right to say it. And in your notes, the belief that it isn't slander if it's true is what? It's a lie. It's a lie. A guy Wood says, to judge a brother in the sense you're intended is to form unfavorable opinions regarding him or her without being able or willing to know the real character of the act condemned or the motives which led to its commission. It is to impute unworthy motives to others to put the worst possible interpretation on their words and on their actions. And James is saying, hey, can, you, can we all stop? He's writing to churches and Christians in the first, can, can we just stop? Can we all just stop busting on each other? Amen? James' argument he's making in this letter is that those who have experienced grace, those who have experienced mercy, those who have mourned, those who have had their face picked up by the Son of God, who understand that he gives more grace, now become an expert, not in the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters, but instead they rejoice in the God-blessing movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And with their mouths and with their lives, they don't tear down others, they build them up. A quick question or two. Are you more apt to see the shortcomings in others or the strength in others? Are you more apt to identify where someone needs to grow up? Or are you more apt to celebrate what God is actively doing in their lives for the good? I'm not talking about discernment. I'm talking about judgment and condemnation. Do you feel the need to tear others down to exalt yourself? One author I read this week said, if we do that, that, that would be somewhat of a litmus test that we haven't experienced grace, that we don't understand the concept of it, not fully. Again, are you more apt to speak life into others or to point out to others, whether passive-aggressively or aggressively, that they have fallen short? See, what James is arguing, that, that, we, that when we walk in true wisdom and understand the grace of God, Quarrels and fights and judgments begin to dissipate. Now, it's not that we won't have them. We will. We're, we're sinful. But, but we become quick to own what we need to own. We're quick to both seek and to give forgiveness. And, and we're quick. And like I said, I'm a work in progress. We're, we're quick to absorb things that we would not normally absorb for the grace and for the glory of God. You see, when it's not about me and it's not about you, we can absorb things that we cannot absorb when everything is about us. Get it? Good. I mean, can, can you imagine what happened in, in, a, in a faith community, in this faith community? I mean, we're trying to get serious about our tongues, right? We got work to do. I mean, this doesn't change our tongue, right? But we made a commitment a few weeks back, right, that, hey, we're going to use our tongues to bring life. You know, each week I watch more people signing their names on a, a tongue depressor, right? You know, but can you imagine what happened in this faith community if what we became experts on was not pointing out each other's faults, but pointing out each other's strengths, and, and that the calls we make, the emails we make, the posts we made on Facebook. We're like, hey, hey, brother, man, I, I've been noticing what God is doing in your life. And you know what? I, I want you to know, brother, that encouraged me. 
Hey, sister, I, I see what you're doing. I, I watch what you overcame, and, and I want you to know I, I, I'm really encouraged by that. I, I see you growing. I see you trying. I see you turning things around. Can you imagine what would happen? I think it'd be beautiful. I mean, let's become experts in each other's strengths, pointing out the good. Uh, one of our youth leaders back in Georgia that worked with Laurie had a saying, you know, you know, for parents and for, especially for parents, catch, catch me doing something good. <laughs> As a parent, I'm good at catching you and doing something bad, right? Walking out, why ain't the kid? Well, you didn't vacuum, you didn't take out the trash, this is the saying, you know, catch me doing something good. What if we, like, what's that our goal? I'm going to walk in this building and I'm going to say something good and catch you doing something good. That's the kind of church that we need to be. Amen? Amen? Amen. And I'm with you. We're going to, we're going to make this happen. And we're going to make this happen. I love James. One thing and we're about done. It's still important. It'll go quick, but, but don't check out yet. Don't boast about your tomorrow. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Now, what appears, to be the, what appears to be the motive of this guy's planning? Make money in himself, right? Then he says, wow, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And that's right, right? Anybody know what's happening tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow at 6 o'clock, right? You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen today. You're thinking, hey, you know what? I'm going to dinner after church at Chili's, right? At, at, at 1230, you get Chili's. Wow, the line's an hour. Hey, I'm going over to Outback. Well, the line's an hour and a half. I'm going to, next thing you know, it's 1.30, you're eating corn dogs at, at Cheats, right? I mean, you don't know, right? I mean, you, you have no, we have no idea what's going to happen. That's what he's saying. Hey, he goes, man, you don't know anything. You know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. Then he says, what is your life? You are a mist. And don't think of a, you know, a mist that hovers around. It's, the word in Greek means like a puff of smoke. You are a mist that appears for a little while. And then vanishes. Not, not only do you not know anything, you don't got much power. You're, just like, you're just a mist. Poof, you're gone. You're gone. And let me tell you, a, a, that's not a good starting point for swagger. I'm ignorant of everything, and I'm only here for a second. Watch me roar, right? I mean, that's just really not. In contrast to our God, who's all-knowing and all-powerful, and has always been here, watch him roar. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we, have, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now, hey, James is not saying planning is wrong, right? Because that scripture has nothing against planning, right? He's also not saying that every time you and I say something, we have to tack on those four words. If it's the Lord's will. Like you get me the four. Hey, see, what are you doing? Well, if it's the Lord's will, I'm going to go down to the life group facilitator meeting if it's the Lord's will. Okay. Hey, where are you going right now? If it's the Lord's will, I'm going to go get a drink of water. He's not saying that. He's not saying we got to add that line. What, what, what he's saying, here's the point he's saying. It's in your notes. It'll pop up on the screen. Jane's point is that our future plans, which are right and good, should be informed by, driven by, fueled by a greater reality. But the Lord's will, right? You know, what's, you know see, all our planning is good. Plan a vacation, plan a business, but in the planning, God should be right at the center, right? You should be, we should be thinking about God's will because guess what? We don't know everything, and we're missed. We're here, and we're gone. If there's a sovereign king of glory and who has a mission, who has created us, then who he is, if there's a sovereign king of glory and a mission and a mission, let me. If there's a sovereign King of Glory who has a mission for us and who has created us, then who He is and what He has called us to do should be uppermost in all our planning. Get it? And now we're going to wrap up. with we need to embrace the ultimate bottom line, which is if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is what? Sin for them. Now, I think in the context, he's saying the good we ought to do, right? You know, 
And maybe you're today, you need to break up with the world, right? Don't even do it face to face. Text is okay. World, I'm done. <laughs> Breaking up. I don't want, I'm done. I'm in a committed relation with Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't do your thing anymore. I can't do that anymore. I'm breaking up with you, world. I, I can't do those things. I won't have those values. I am breaking up with you. Some of us maybe need to bow down to God. Man, you, you've not been resisting the devil. You've been, you, you've been, you've been making it easy on the devil. You, you've not been drawing near to God. That's why I can't draw near to you. you. You've not been real or serious about your sin. Man, sin's a big deal, right? It put Jesus on the cross. And maybe your day, and, and, and James is saying, stop busting on your brothers and sisters, right? Get off of them. Encourage them. Seek the strengths in people and build them up and don't tear them down. And maybe somebody's saying, you know, make sure God's in your plans. I know you got good plans. You're smart, intelligent people, God says. But you know what? I'm a lot smarter. But you're, just, you're just a mess. Make your plans, but make sure I'm at the center of them. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do, and is the Holy Spirit telling you there's some things you need to do in response to what James has laid on us today or laid us in the past few weeks or anything you know in Scripture that you're saying, hey, I know I should do this, but I'm just not. You know, I want to encourage you just to let it go. And we're going to sing this song. It's called Come As You Are, which I love so much because maybe you're today, you know what, you, you, you know, we all, okay, I guess we all are pretty messed up, right? I mean, James gets in her face, and, and the good news, right, is we don't have to get cleaned up to get a bath, right? We come as we are, broken people coming into the presence of a holy God. And I just want to encourage you, you know, as we sing, right? I mean, we're going to be gone here in a few minutes, and, you know, you can just sing the song and walk out, or you can take this time to really listen to your God Commune with your Savior, push out any kind of distraction the enemy wants to put in your head, and worship him, and come as you are to his throne. Would you stand with me as I pray? Father God, we love you, and we're humbled by you. And God, some of us, we're, we're tired of trying to lift ourselves up because we don't get very high, we don't stay up long, and our knees are hurting. God, help us to humble ourselves before you. Holy Spirit, you know us. You know me. And may, I may already think I already know what you want to say to me, but I pray as I sing this song and as we worship you, as we come before the throne of the sovereign king of the universe who knows us inside and out, who we can hide nothing from, who knows the thoughts and intentions of every heart in this room, God, especially you know mine, God, I, I pray that I'll listen again. Listen fresh for your voice. And I thank you, Jesus. Like that woman in her snot and shame and tears and regret, that we can come as we are. We can draw near as we are to you. In Jesus' name, amen.